you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Well, good morning. Can you... uh, I was working on this last night as my dog was having an anxiety attack because of the fireworks, and my baby was teething and my wife wasn't feeling very good so now we've been up for a while <laughs> um thank you guys i want to first before i get started thank you so much for allowing me to be up here i am very humbled and honored and obviously very nervous um it's a big deal so uh, i don't take it lightly and thank you for trusting me and allowing me to do this and caring for me as you have so um, I've been working with the guys for the past few months, as Greg said, uh, and I'm excited about the next few sermons. We've prayed and, and debated and encouraged each other over each sermon, so seeing it develop will be a joy. Um, watching the guys work through it has been awesome. They've done excellent. Um, like Greg said, I was assigned the first two verses, and originally I was nervous to only have two, but as Brandon um, lovingly reminded me, all of Scripture is, is pregnant with truth. So, uh, so let's get started. The title of this sermon is Mentorship and Identity. And my goal lesson for you, church, is to walk away today with an understanding of the importance of knowing how much being confident in your identity in Christ affects your outlook, your emotions, and your reaction to a broken world. 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 2 is this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for, uh, for this church. Thank you for Timothy's willingness to go to Ephesus and how you used Paul to encourage him. Thank you for how you've passed on these letters to us, and we can read them and draw encouragement and lessons from them. I pray that I'm able to execute this well in a way that's honoring to you, and at the end of this, people remember your name. So God, thank you for today, and may we remember you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I'd like to give some background first. First and Second Timothy and Titus are what are known as pastoral epistles, letters. The most unique feature about them is how they are prescriptive and how Christians are to live their lives and why. We know that Paul wrote this after his first imprisonment, likely about five years before his death. Paul wrote this to Timothy while Timothy was in, while Timothy was in Ephesus. Timothy was stationed here to combat false teaching. Culturally speaking, the temple of Artemis was here. The cult of Artemis was prevalent in magic and sorcery. Artemis was worshipped as the goddess of the hunt, among other things, and her great triumph is that she overthrew a titan to take control of the moon. Keep that in mind as we discuss culture during this series. So Timothy had quite a pig to wrestle here. Additionally, there was false teaching that was starting to gain influence in his church. And as we're studying this section, it should be remembered that these issues in Timothy are not unique. False teaching has always been around. In the garden, the serpent made Adam and Eve question God's very own words. And then right before this letter was written in Acts 20, Paul speaks to the same congregation and calls false teachers, 
quote, savage wolves, and how men will speak of twisted things to draw disciples away. Combating this is the essence of 1 Timothy. So bringing it back home, it may be needless to say that during this series we're going to be wrestling with a lot. At times, it can feel as if Redeemer has been really taking a lot of punches lately. A lot of hard lessons have been learned. So our goal with these next sermons should be to take from what Paul is teaching here and really think how to reply. Let's get up here and let's do this. What did Greg say last time? <laughs> Come on, man. Today, our focus is going to be identity in Christ and how it affects how we should approach difficult tasks, how we should view ourselves in light of Christ, and how we we are to emulate Christ in our conduct and discourse. I want to be clear in saying that you and I are not Timothy. Even the pastors are not. Timothy was on a temporary mission to build up the church, teach her how to walk, if you will, and then leave. He and Titus were apostolic delegates. They were not permanent resident pastors like we have and like most churches have. Their ministry cannot be equated. But they were sent to apply Paul's commands to specific circumstances. This, ladies and gentlemen, is called hermeneutics. Even so, we can draw incredibly relevant lessons from the text and engage our church and community with biblical precision. My prayer is that this will be edifying. So let's start unpacking. Verse 1, Paul. Let's stop there. Paul introduces himself very similarly to how he does in all his other letters. It can be easy to look over. But I was assigned two verses, so we get a chance to dive into this text, word by word, and look at some things often missed. Paul uses his first words to establish authority by confirming his identity first. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, pay attention, for I am a special representative. I'm not sure if you know this, but you don't just become an apostle by choice. The role was given by no mistake, or choice of fortune, or assignment via schooling, Paul was not elected by man. Here he is saying, I, Paul, the person writing this letter to you, have been called by Christ himself. Do not neglect these words. Paul understood who God is, who he was, and who Timothy was. And then he explains it. He understood the authority of the one who called him and the authority he possessed as an apostle. What Paul did with that, or sorry, what did Paul do with that? In other words, in worldly matters, what would Paul have done? In fact, What did Paul do with his previous authority before he became a believer and he was a Pharisee? He boasted his position and leveraged it to begin killing what would become a long line of Christian martyrs. But after grace, mercy, and peace, which we'll get to later, entered Paul through Christ, he understood his identity and stewarded his apostleship to do what? To raise disciples, to build the church, and to humbly accept imprisonment and death with joy. So what kind of relationship would we have if we were all like that? So the next two words are, by command. Once again, Paul is establishing the very nature of his letter. It wasn't written out of boredom or loneliness, but deep conviction and concern for what Paul has learned of the church in Ephesus. Paul isn't saying, hey man, I got you a cookie because I was thinking about you. He's saying, brother, there is some serious heresy brewing in your congregation, and you've taken too long to weed it out. Now... Here is how you must handle it. In saying by command, Paul is likely reminding Timothy that he too is bound under orders, as if to say, as I am commanded, so are you. As such, it is authoritative in nature, prescribing broad lessons and also specific instructions. It is unmistakably clear that Timothy is not to deviate 
from this teaching. There is no allegory to this. There is no, well, that's cultural shrug off that we as Christians really try to do with the text. Timothy is to put on scrubs and perform surgery. Let me ask you this. How different would the church be if we did not stray from the text? If we were passionate about staying committed to the delivery of God's unabridged word? Let me ask it this way. How different is a false teacher from a hesitant one? What are, the issues, what are the issues festering right now in the church, family, life groups that we've been putting off? What roof leaks are we putting buckets under? <laughs> when my wife and I first moved into our last house, there were quite a few things wrong with it. One of which being multiple holes in the floor. One of them happened to be where a shower shared a wall with the dining room. And the shower floor had separated from the shower wall, allowing water to seep behind it. And all I could see was a soft spot in the floor. So I brought my contractor friend Robert over. And when, he, when I asked him how much time I had, he said, man, none. He peeled back the linoleum and I saw what years of neglect had done. Over time, this leak, this small two centimeter gap, had caused the floor to give way the structure to rot, and the very rim joists that hold up the house to disintegrate. It was really m- difficult and messy to get in, cut out the subfloor and sister the joists so that my house wouldn't collapse, but I couldn't put it off any longer. So embrace what you're wanting to avoid. And although Paul stated his role, he makes it clear that Christ is from whom truth and authority comes from. Moving on, the next lines are this. By command, we just said that, of God our Savior. Once again, we can skip over this little four-word set here, but Paul was stating a lot. Specifically, he was fighting this idea at the time that governing authorities possess the power to save. But let us be very clear. Emperors cannot save you. They can release you from prison or place you in pleasure, but they cannot save. Christian, you must remember this. Freedom from hardship is not salvation. Victory in the polls is not either. A great example of this is the Colosseum. We used to be slaughtered in it. And now, it's just a crumbling testament to how all empires come to an end. The Temple of Artemis is another one. It was in Ephesus, where Timothy is. It was this massive building that looked similar to the Parthenon. Feasts and parties and all sorts of pagan worship, I understand there's kids in here, would take place here. And now, now it's just a blank piece of earth with barely two columns left. I looked it up. The article had to take a weird picture of these two columns at an odd angle just to get both of them in. They're half crumbling. God's stated identity here is our Savior. That is, A, who we should view God as, and equally as important, B, who we should view our Savior as. This is crucial. Without these two views, our heart starts manufacturing idols. So building on that, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. Rest there, Christian. I could close my Bible and step off. God is our Savior and Christ is our hope. Done. That's it. Rest in the hope. Rest in that your hope is in Christ because he cannot fail or lose or be defeated. 2,000 years of relentless attacks on his bride and yet she continues to flourish. And I had to Google search who Artemis was. I don't want it to be ironic that I'm speaking about embracing what you're avoiding and saying rest. I want you to take resting in Jesus to mean knowing that Christ's identity is king. 
and he is king over whatever outcome will happen when you embrace what you're avoiding. So Paul reminds Timothy that his congregation needed to stand on the truth of God's word and affix their hope on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to imagine Timothy receiving this letter. Timothy, who is both new in life and new in faith, has a mentor who is seasoned in scripture and ministry writing to him. It's pretty cool. Upon receiving this letter, he probably reads it earnestly before he got home. We know from the context that he's struggling to correct a lot of sour theology. And Paul's first words point straight to Christ and remind Timothy of who it is we serve. When I was in youth ministry in college, we'd be facilitating a lot of uh, local mission trips for high schoolers. And it was quite common for high schoolers to idolize college kids. And as we taught and led these kids, we were clearly instructed to point to the cross and duck, lest we become the hero of the mission trip. So we do not worship pastors or apostles. We learn from their worship so it may fortify our own. Timothy's instructions were to stand fast, and so are yours. Paul uses his next words to encourage his disciple in the faith via deep and powerful words that affirm Timothy's new identity in Christ. On to verse 2, to Timothy. Timothy and Titus were sent out around the same time, and while we're not addressing Titus, it is important to know the context. Paul chose two men who were experienced, but less mature, less social standing, less honor, and yet entrusted them to steward tough churches. Think about that. The first mention of Timothy is in Acts 16. Paul and Timothy met in Lystra, and Paul took Timothy to be a disciple. From here we know that Timothy assisted Paul in a number of different ministry contexts. What little we know about Timothy actually gives the next section of passage a lot of weight. It's the crux of this sermon, in fact. Paul affirming Timothy's identity in Christ. True child in the faith. Paul calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Something I have noticed in men and women is that when the more sure of who they are in Christ, the more confident they are in every aspect of their life. Conversely, I have seen offices, businesses, families, friendships, and even churches crushed by the lack of security Christ freely offers. So I will add to the question earlier. How would the Big C Church look like if A, we would not stray from or omit difficult parts of the text, and B, if we were confident in who our identities were in Christ? We have routinely addressed identity here, but I will add this. Your identity outside of Christ is grievously empty. True child in the faith means Timothy genuinely reproduces Paul's own spiritual characteristics as a natural son would reflect the natural characteristics of his father. It's not exactly light in any era to make the claim of fatherhood over a person. In fact, it's a real bold move. So when I first started studying, I was left with the question, what can Paul mean by that? What can he mean by my true child in the faith? Well, first, how does the ideal father interact with his son? They love and teach and encourage their sons. They walk alongside them, instructing as they go. They let them drive their manual farm truck through the city, knowing well that their sons will miss a gear and kill the engine in an intersection just so they can learn how to drive. They teach them to work so that they may become fathers to the next generation. And from this, we see the beautiful story of Christ. In the second letter, Paul writes, he asks Timothy how his mom and his grandma are doing. All boys have this tender concern and care for each other's mamas. 
many conversations I have with guys like Dylan or Will or every close friend that I have revolve around how our moms are doing. Just in the last few years, I've prayed with my brothers when their mamas are struggling with fear or loss of a spouse or uncertainty or homelessness or abuse or sudden hospitalization for what seemed like forever. So when we read Paul asking Timothy or asking about Timothy's grandma and mom, it's initially odd that is in Scripture, but in reality it's quite relatable. Throughout both books there exists this fraternal, meaning brotherly, and paternal, meaning fatherly, voice where Paul is sharing sayings in Scripture with Timothy like a mentor should. So this establishes a real closeness between them. True here, true child in faith, true here means genuine. Not so much an opposition to false, but the opposite of illegitimate. Acts 16 says that Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman and a pagan man. By Jewish culture, this makes him illegitimate. And yet, we have Paul negating that and giving Timothy claim to legitimacy. There is a saying, it is incredibly misquoted to actually mean the opposite of what it originally it should be. And that saying is this, blood is thicker than water. The original saying goes, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Meaning, my tie with you through Christ is more important than your tie to your family. Paul and Timothy epitomize the saying. I try to take pride in my family lineage, and consistently it's fallen flat. For example, just the immediate family between Erica and I have no less than 17 divorces. On my side, two of the patriarchs are missing totally. Uh, That means that two whole dads are MIA. Two entire branches of my family tree are just gone. But my hope is not in that, or a bloodline, or whatever 23andMe might say. My hope is in this kingdom of generations that is led by the most powerful king, steered for eternal glory. And so we see this gentle but sure paternalism from Paul to Timothy, where he affirms his identity and gives him confidence, but also gives him commands that are challenging, very important. Greg pointed out a few weeks ago that just as Jesus passed on baptism and discipleship, Paul has now passed it on to Timothy. What is exciting to think about is that Timothy is part of a second generation of disciples. And that is a line that eventually leads to where you and I are today. Brandon has an example that I want to steal, but I won't. But I want to. (laughs) But I will say this, the faithfulness of one once unified to the body is astounding. Timothy's success is not dependent on his perceived outcome of how his congregation will react. Christ's success is his success. And it's important to know that this routinely doesn't look like a full revival or a new building addition. Earlier in the Bible, we see this mirrored by the success of John the Baptist. His goal, his success was to decrease. His goal was that his audience would know Christ. Our goal should be that as well. That our name be quickly forgotten but that Christ would be remembered after we go. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why Temple gave us this church. This is why we send out, sorry, missionaries and church planters and pastors. Nathan and Bobby and Kevin and Robert and Sage and Patrick are all guys I'd like to mentor me for the next 20 years. But the Lord has sent them, and Christ's success is my success. So we succeed when the faithful listen. Up to now... We have established the author's identity, authority, and who it was given by. And we have established the recipient's identity. Now, 
let's move on to how the recipient, confident in his identity, should conduct the very hard actions he's getting ready to do. By using his final words of the introduction, Paul lays a foundation for his letter by reminding Timothy of the reality of our relationship to God. And this is how it goes. Grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. At this point in the letter, it is clear that these are prayers from Paul to Timothy. Additionally, these are three huge blessings, gifts, and reminders. I would say that these are the three heaviest, most powerful words to our soul. These gifts from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord are eternally full. No update or charging time is needed for them. What is encouraging is that these three, as powerful as they are, are manifested in us as believers and should be manifested from you to your network of who you're ministering to. Grace and mercy and peace are gifts. Cherish and use them well. Although I could easily go on about each of these three for a while, we have a limited time, so I'll give you little sliders of each. Grace. Grace, originally used, implies an inability of the part of the recipient that required the help of somebody else. By definition, it is courteous goodwill. Grace is the reality that the God of the universe tabernacles with us. He is not so distant or removed that he does not have an active part in our everyday. His goal is to advance his kingdom, and that's a good thing. And since he has called us to be a part of it, we get to be in communion with him in a way that is baffling for non-believers as his kingdom advanced. It's even baffling for believers to understand. God is with us forever. And that connection between a holy God and a broken people is Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2-4 says this, There is never a time where Christ's blood runs out. His mercy, grace, and peace is eternal. Here it is. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Jesus is the full radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the full grace, mercy, and peace of God. Let's go to mercy. Mercy implies that those who receive those benefits have a need that they cannot fulfill themselves. And I'll say it differently. Mercy, by definition, implies that those who receive it have a need that they can't fill themselves. They can't do it. It's because of this mercy, sorry, it's this because mercy is compassion, forgiveness towards someone who is within one's power to punish or harm. Mercy is ego deflating. Paul starts all of his letters with grace and peace. In this letter alone, he adds mercy to it. I'm not going to read into that, but Paul knows the gravity of the conversations that are getting ready to happen. And this word being here suggests that he hopes that Timothy may remember mercy as he approaches them. So peace, that is lack of conflict. To be at peace with God is the most important peace. Peace to know that the Lord is good. Peace to know that in hard, honest conversation, God is in power. Peace to know that our roof leaks or structure problems or people moving to a state that really isn't that good. These things do not hinder God's work or church whatsoever. In this letter, Paul instructs Timothy about excommunicating false teachers, which is messy. Those that he confronts aren't false teachers to an empty audience. There exists a delicate balance of grace, mercy, and peace from God, but never is God's attitude gentle to 
towards heresy and false teaching. God is consistent, and we as believers reside in these three and combat heresy. To commission an experienced elder to combat something as infectious as false teaching would be tough. As a younger person, it would be daunting. Scripture is beautiful for so many reasons, but one of my favorite, like Doug said last week, is how wrecked most of the main characters are. All of them except one, really. Use that as an encouragement. You have the same Holy Spirit in you that was in Timothy, that was in Paul, that was in Stephen, and so on. The three key traits of Paul, of God that Paul taught Timothy, and God's three reasons for sending Christ to us, three attributes that he taught, and three that resided in those two men. These three attributes carried the cross to Calvary and will carry the church until Jesus returns and for eternity after. You cannot have a correct view of God's identity without these three attributes. And you cannot define these three attributes without grossly avoiding the character of God. Greg pointed out also, the first interaction sinners have is grace, mercy, and peace. Think about it. The first interaction God had with us as sinners was this. Think of your conversion when you first believed. Think of the garden and God's response. Where are you? Where are you, my son? Where are you, my daughter? You can hear God's grace in that. So when God engages his people, it's with these three elements. And he engaged us with Jesus. That is why I said, and I'll say it again, Jesus is the full grace, mercy, and peace of God. So Timothy, as you are charging to not teach different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, as you were loving with a pure heart and a sincere faith, as you were laying down the law for the disobedient, as you were remembering Christ in the gospel, as you were waging the good warfare, as you were holding faith in a good conscience, do this with grace, mercy, and peace. I will add to the question said again, how would the Big C Church look like if A, we would not stray from or omit difficult parts of the text, and B, if we were to conduct, if we were confident in our identities or who our identities were in Christ, and a C, if we handled all issues both in the church and out with grace, mercy, and peace at the forefront of our hearts. Ooh, I've been talking a lot, Greg. How do you do this? <laughs> Paul not only defends the faith in 1 Timothy, he vigorously attacks offenses to it. Later on, we'll read that he immediately sets out to instruct to stop false teaching. I started to read this letter from Timothy's eyes, but as I studied Paul, it is so evident how passionate he was for preserving the gospel. In his first words to Timothy, his immediate goal that he says with earnest, almost as if he can or won't wait, and his urgency is so dire that rather than wait another sentence, he reminds Timothy to fortify his soul on the promise of Jesus. Often when reading the opening lines of a book, especially scripture, Christians can be so hungry for all of the book that we can easily overlook the details of the beginning verses. But one of the things that Paul does first in this book is to call Timothy immediately to do one of the hardest things that those in church leadership are called to do, excommunicate. And while we won't dive into that this week, I have to admire the urgency of Paul here. Here is your most difficult task, Timothy. I will tell you it first. Don't avoid it. Don't wait for it to fester and grow anymore. Do it now. So what? Are we avoiding to confront? 
a pet sin, a reluctance to show grace, sin of a brother or sister, where would you be had someone else quenched the beckoning of the Holy Spirit? Where will you be if you don't? It's not fun facing idols of yourself or your neighbor, but we must. The church must. And with confidence in our identity, the burden is much lighter, and the consequences ought not to be feared. Whether it be rebuke or encouragement, dear brothers and sisters, it has to come from a heart made new by grace, mercy, and peace. Otherwise, it is from pride. This is the quintessence of Christian community. All Paul did was strengthen Timothy in the same truth that has been echoed throughout history. As such, I encourage you to do the same. As we work through this book, let us have an urgency marked by grace, mercy, and peace of God, our Savior, in Christ Jesus, our hope. This letter, as an inerrant word of God, bodes submitting to. When you compromise that, when you compromise Scripture, you cannot take the high ground up again, at least not easily. When you invite a wolf to instruct your flock, he's going to teach them how to be devoured, not how to guard the deposit. So we cling to the word of God, or to use Paul's definitions from this short passage, we cling to the hope of our Savior. Church is messy, and yet it was God's idea. And if the church is God's idea, we must be ready to carry out his word and do it with conviction. Not leave a solid church when things get messy or when there are two sides to a cultural debate. So what happens to Timothy's church in the end? In Revelation 2, we find out. Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus. He compliments their zeal, but admonishes their lack of grace, mercy, and peace. Here it is. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So my final words are this. If Paul were to write a letter to Redeemer today, to one of the elders, What would he say?